Clark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the new season of the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. We've decided to expand the podcast for this season. We're going to continue to interview authors of new books in the field, um, but we're also going to spotlight uh, people with new articles in the field, new initiatives, uh, new collaborations. We want to bring you more of what's happening in the vibrant field of Middle East political science and to really be able to feature the exciting work that people are doing. Uh, joining us on the, this first um, this first episode of the season is Kelsey Norman of the Baker Institute at Rice University, who will be discussing her brand new book, Reluctant Reception, Refugees, Migration, and Governance in the Middle East and North Africa. We'll also be joined by Gail Badorf of the University of Houston, who, along with Nermeen Alam of Rutgers and Marwa Shalabi of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, has been... Uh, leading a, a, a research project on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the field of uh, Middle East uh, studies and on academia more broadly. And we'll be joined by Samar Aboud of Villanova University, who will be discussing his work, um, including in a recent PullMap Studies collection, on Syria and the different forms of uh, conflict and post-conflict evolutions that we're seeing there. This is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Gail Budorf of University of Houston, who's one of the directors of a new project on the effects of COVID on the field, um, along with Marwa Shalabi of the University of Wisconsin at Madison and Nermeen Alam at Rutgers University. Gail, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for um, the opportunity to share our survey and our, our research, which was really the, the brainchild of Nermeen and Marwa, so I'm, I'm sorry they can't also be with us today. Well, tell us about the survey, uh, how you fielded it, what the motivations behind it were, and um, and basically where it stands right now. Yeah, so the motivation was, um, you know, as the pandemic was unfolding in, in March and, and April, we got together to discuss the possibility of doing a um, a survey on, you know, productivity among academic political scientists. And because we're all political scientists that work on the Middle East, we were particularly interested in how this was going to impact MENA researchers. Because, you know, of course, last summer or even, you know, starting in March, you know, travel was being canceled. Upcoming plans were up in the air regarding whether or not we could do field work in the summer and and so on. So that was the the motivation behind doing the survey. Um, we fielded it online between late May and and late July, so about two months, um, and covered a, a number of different you know, modules or topic areas such as productivity, service, the shift to online teaching. Um, how the pandemic has impacted your research plans for the summer and fall, um, plans to attend conferences and, and so on. So just a number of different aspects about um, academic life early on in the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And about how many responses did you get? We had over 200, um, about half of whom um, researched the, the Middle East and North Africa. And we had scholars in, in I think, a, I remember this correctly, about more than 30 countries. So in the Middle East, in Europe, um, in the United States and Canada, 
um, NFU um, in, uh, in South America as well. That's great. So tell us then about some of the, the most important findings that the survey produced. Yeah, so one of the main findings is um, perhaps unsurprisingly that overall research productivity declined during the pandemic. Um, and this was particularly acute for scholars with children or young children, I should say, those under 18. So as we know, childcare centers closed, schools closed. Um, uh, many students had to transition <clears throat> to online learning and this required a lot of assistance from, from parents. You know, then, you know, perhaps both partners were at home working from home or attempting to work from home as well as um, uh, uh, having to take care of children, help with schoolwork and, and so on. So we saw a big impact for, for parents in, in particular. But we also saw um, a big increase in the non-research related work workload uh, among female academics. So, you know, it wasn't just the pandemic, but then also starting in um, the early summer, you had um, a protest across the United States regarding police uh, violence, and this resulted in a lot of universities sort of convening or reconvening diversity um, committees. And so there was a lot of service um, work going on during because of the pandemic and also because of other um, reasons that uh, took a lot of time out of, uh, of scholars' research time. And, and you found that affecting women more? Yeah, we found it affecting women more. And that's yeah. uh, even before the pandemic. Uh, um, a finding that's pretty robust in, in political science in particular about women um, being asked to do more service, not less likely to say no, um, and, mm -hmm. and doing less prestigious service than, than their male counterparts. So let's talk about the, uh, the, the research in the field then and, and the effects that people report in the survey. Uh, you, wrote, you guys wrote a really nice piece for us uh, in the Mina Politics newsletter, summing up some of these findings. Um, but uh, just walk us through it a little bit um, about how the effective closure of the field to many of us um, has been affecting research agendas. Right. So there were some immediate short-term impacts. For example, everyone had to cancel or almost everyone had to cancel research travel, whether it was for conferences or for field work. Um, we found only about half of our of the researchers working in on the, the MENA were able to continue to have full access to their data. Um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, 91% postponed travel for research. Um, and in terms of trying to shift uh, online or remote data collection, only about 31% of um, MENA-focused scholars were able to conduct any field work this past spring and summer um, remotely. Um, so it really impacted immediate plans. And you know, if you had plans to go and do a survey in person or to do ethnographic research or even trying to access archives, so we had some scholars report that even, you know, if the archives were located in their their own country, they weren't able to access them in, in April um, and May because everything was closed. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, accessing um, 
you know, research subjects or research sites in, in foreign countries, but also even um, uh, archive or other library um, libraries, which were closed during the pandemic. And one of the points that you made, which I thought was interesting, was the, the differential effect that this has on different types of research. Yes, I think, you know, one of the things that's become clear, you know, now eight months plus nine months into the pandemic is that there are differential effects or unequal effects depending on gender. We also see differential effects for the type of research. So, and this is a finding that's been echoed in the hard sciences. So there was a piece published in, in Nature over the summer that showed that, you know, scientists whose work requires access to a physical lab were being particularly hard hit relative to scientists who could do their work on the computer. So for example, mathematics, computer science statistics um, uh, were less reported less um, declines in their pr productivity relative to those that had, you know, like in biology or, or chemistry where they have to be physically in a lab and, and those fields reported much bigger declines in their, in their productivity. And, and, you know, I think both in the short term and long term, we'll see this in political science or for Middle East politics, those that can or have been able to or can shift to remote data collection um, will do so. But then those that still need access um, to, to research sites in the region, to research subjects in the region will face um, considerable delays in their research agenda because, you know, although we now have the vaccine, it's still unclear when we'll be able to safely, safely travel and safely access. Um, and remote research, research it really isn't the same thing. Right. Yeah, so even if you can say, you know, um, reach politicians um, over WhatsApp or other um, apps, it's, you know, you're, you're still losing information um, that you would, you would gain if you were in physically in a room with them. Um, and of course, you know, there's the issue of that um, in the Middle East, you know, digital technologies are used by the, the state for surveillance and crackdown, then, you know, not everyone um, is going to feel comfortable talking about all possible questions you, you may have raised if you were, were there in person. Now, you, one can imagine uh, different trajectories in terms of the, relation, the, the, the relations that that forges between scholars who can no longer get to the field and local scholars, uh, people from those countries. Um, and uh, I thought that you had some interesting thoughts on that as well. Yes, I mean, I think one thing that could potentially come out of this is for us to, you know, those that are based in the U.S., Canada, or Europe, to forge stronger ties with scholars in the region who, um, um, who, you know, can conduct field work easily or more easily. And then also, um, you know, not jetting in, doing two days of field work and leaving, you know, sort of the safari um, field work. And it, it's a potential opportunity to build long lasting partnerships with um, uh, scholars in the region and universities in the region. Um, uh, particularly for, might, it might be particularly important for junior scholars and for um, grad students if they, if they can't and, you know, right. two summers, potentially three summers lost um, conducting fieldwork. And it could be exploitative or it could be genuine partnerships. 
yes, I think there's a real risk of, you know, exploitation of, you know, oh, you're in Jordan, why don't you go out and conduct these interviews for me or go out and set this up, um, as opposed to having a real research partnership where, you know, you're working on a project together. Um, and I think this is important even regardless of the pandemic, because one of the things um, several scholars from the region noted was they, even before the pandemic, they were facing pretty scarce research budgets. Um, and of course, the concern is across the board, whether you're based in the United States, Canada, Europe, wherever you're, the universities are going to um, face uh, pretty dire financial um, circumstances in the in the future, but it's already um, particularly dire for scholars in the region. So that's another way to build partnerships that amplify the voices in the region rather than exploiting. Well, great. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with Gail Budorf, uh, University of Houston, who is one of the three leaders of a project, along with Marwa Shalabi and Nermeen Alam, uh, studying the effects of COVID on uh, the field of Middle East political science. Uh, you can read their work, uh, at least part of it, in the Municipolitics newsletter uh, that was published this fall. Um, Gail, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. And we're really excited about this research and uh, we're currently expanding it. Uh, Rita Stefan is putting together an edited volume on COVID as female, um, you know, gender pandemic policies in the Middle East and North Africa. So we're also really excited to be expanding our research and contributing to, to that volume. So we appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about our work. Fantastic. Can't wait to read that. Uh, thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Samer Aboud from the Global Interdisciplinary Studies Department at Villanova University. Uh, Samer, thanks for joining us. Thank you, for, thank you very much for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. So we recently uh, released a POMAP Studies collection uh, called Frozen Conflicts, and you contributed uh, the, what was essentially the lead essay uh, helping us to conceptualize uh, the nature of these so-called frozen conflicts, which you actually don't believe are frozen at all. Um, and that's part of a, a much larger uh, a project that you've been working on for years on the Syrian conflict and how to understand what's happening there. So could you just tell us about your work on Syria and how you understand this evolving warscape? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Mark, because I think my my current work is sort of motivated by the assumption now that the Syrian conflict is kind of coming to an end or some sort of end. And so I'm really interested in thinking about um, the construction of a post-conflict order, what uh, Syria will look like in five, 10 years and how the groundwork for that is being laid now um, <clears throat> through, you know, everything from, um, a series of laws that the, the regime is passing to kind of uh, construct new notions of citizenship to the geopolitical alignments that are going to kind of uphold this post-conflict order. And uh, a lot of the things that I was kind of thinking about and seeing <clears throat> were um, kind of beyond the kind of proxy wars literature, uh, beyond anything that I was really finding in international relations, that there, there seemed to be um, 
a kind of momentum towards a post-conflict order that I was having trouble conceptualizing in relation to the literature. Uh, and I was really drawn to this idea of an illiberal or an authoritarian peace. Basically this question of how authoritarian states make peace. Uh, and, and that's really motivated my, my work on Syria recently. I'm trying to link these kind of, or to think about the relationship between what's happening on the ground in Syria so everything from um, new property laws, new laws around citizenship, uh, the, the criminalization uh, and the labeling of terrorism as everything from Facebook posts to um, you know, speech. Uh, uh, that on the one hand, and how that links to uh, the Astana process, what's happening between Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Um, and then the broader question, of course, is what this means for uh, for kind of, you know, what we might call liberal order in the 21st century. So you have this concept of, uh, you describe this as a, an illiberal conflict ontology. And so what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so um, when I'm writing that, I have in mind this piece actually that I, I just published uh, with the Journal of Intervention and State Building. And that was motivated by a reading of figurative reconstruction plans in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at, um, and I say this uh, with respect to a lot of these institutions that are genuinely trying to think about the humanitarian situation in Syria. Uh, and there's actually a great piece in a POMEPS, um, um, POMEPS uh, years ago about the humanitarian issue in Syria, about how to get humanitarian aid there. Right. And one of the puzzles posed in that piece is that the logic of humanitarianism does not fit the logic of the Syrian conflict. And, and for me, the, when I refer to an illiberal conflict ontology, I'm thinking about the actual materiality of war, how the Syrian war is unfolding, and how that's inconsistent with our liberal notions of why wars start and how peace can be enacted. And um, this, in the, in the paper I referred to, is what, I, what I'm essentially arguing is that uh, liberal interveners do not understand sufficiently what's happening in Syria, that the recommendations that are being put forth for reconstruction, for affecting post-conflict uh, order in Syria are more consistent with the kind of liberal assumption about the world than they are with the illiberal materiality of conflict. So you, you say that you see the conflict as coming to an end, but what does that mean exactly, given all of the, 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 the various forces that you describe that are still operative on the ground? Yeah, uh, that, sorry, I should uh, pick my words a bit better. I think a lot of people are assuming that there is some sort of end to this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, what I'm trying to say in the, in the POMEPS piece uh, and in my work in general is that there is a new order that is being created out of this and in many ways is an, is an extension of conflict. So I'm, I'm really interested in how uh, the kind of enmity, violence, exclusion um, that we see in the conflict is extended into the, into the kind of quote unquote post-conflict period. So I'm not seeing peace as, some, as something um, that is um, defined by the absence of violence or the attempt to roll back violence, but actually quite the opposite. That, that now what we're seeing is a kind of new phase of the conflict in which the regime uh, and its allies are empowered 
to enact further violence against the population, against, uh, against Syrians. And we see this, um, I have a piece in citizenship studies on the bifurcation of society into the loyal and to the disloyal. And this was always a kind of discursive um, a discursive strategy of the regime, but now we see this embedded in law. And we see things like the um, settlement committees created by the regime to approve people's return or not. Uh, and this is really an attempt at denationalizing, denationalizing Syrians uh, that have left the country. Uh, and we're not talking about a few dozen people. Um, right now, I, I gather there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been denied. Uh, re-entry, and there are also many people, I mean, they're effectively subject to loyalty tests. And if you don't pass the loyalty test, uh, then you are not allowed to return to the country, you can't work in the country, you can't have a house, you can't have a bank account, um, these sorts of things. So I'm not seeing um, the uh, this kind of period beyond intense fighting and this kind of constantly shifting geography as one that is about power sharing, as one that is about healing or reconciliation. It's quite the opposite. The regime is using it as an opportunity to extend uh, the politics and violence of the conflict. So some people are, are making the argument that uh, with the, the Caesar sanctions and, uh, and the continuing uh, pressure and isolation, that at some point it might compel uh, Bashar al-Assad to, um, to do some sort of power sharing agreement in order to uh, get sanctions relief. But your work doesn't really seem to suggest that that's likely. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure what evidence there is of that. I'm not, I'm not sure what uh, cases we have around the world or what, what we know about this regime that, um, that sanctions are going to place that much pressure on them. Uh, sanctions are a really blunt instrument that we know has, um, you know, they have serious humanitarian consequences. And I'm not sure um, how that or why that would compel the regime into any sort of political process that would appease, um, appease the United Nations, the, the West, you know, whatever that means, the United States, Europe, uh, that would appease those actors enough to legitimize the regime and to engage in reconstruction. Like, I, I'm not sure that whatever the effects of sanctions are would produce a political process that was um, uh, conducive to that shift to, towards regime legitimization. I do think that um, the Russian leadership in Syria is, is really trying to, uh, to produce a, a political process that would do that work would invite reconstruction money in, would uh, allow you know, the regime to be legitimized on the international arena. I'm just, I'm just not sure that, um, that sanctions are going to produce that because then you know, we'll constantly run into this problem of whether the process is cosmetic or not. Like according to uh, the Russians and the Syrians, there is a constitutional committee. It's overseen by the United Nations right now. I mean, this is all part of Astana. Uh, there are 150 people who are supposed to be uh, negotiating a new Syrian constitution, uh, but we know that process is riddled with problems. Uh, so does that count? You know, does that, <laughs> does that count as power sharing? Does that count as um, uh, a kind of concession on the part of the regime? I, I just, I'm not sure what, 
uh, I, I don't think, sorry, I don't think sanctions are, are going to be what compels this regime to engage in the politics or a political process that would be um, uh, amenable to the West. Well, I guess one last question then is, now that you've kind of rethought and reconceptualized what's been happening in Syria the way that you have, where and how does that challenge our kind of conventional thinking about uh, civil wars, interventions, um, the ending, war termination, and that sort of thing? What, what do you see as like the major uh, uh, ways that your way of thinking about this should be pushing the field uh, to be taken seriously? That's a great question. Um, I really, in my early understanding of uh, the Syrian conflict, I was really, um, really drew on a lot of the civil war literature, especially as it related to uh, armed group formation. Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in uh, the kind of political economy of conflict, uh, especially as it related to our assumptions about resources. And I think that one of the things that I'm not sure we understand enough about Syria is the kind of micro political economies of conflict, how uh, kidnapping, extortion, um, uh, checkpoints, this kind of uh, very predatory behavior, how, how that um, shaped uh, the materiality of conflict itself, but how it's also shaping power in the post-conflict period, because we're seeing the emergence of a kind of conflict elite in Syria mm -hmm. that is tethered to that predatory economy. And, and those kinds of transformations, um, I, I think there's some interesting literature in the Bosnian case about that. Uh, and there's, I think, some interesting literature about Iraq, but those kinds of um, transformations of uh, elite networks, how they're tethered to predatory political economies, and how they're how we're seeing them right now in Syria. I mean, even many of these warlords are are now entering parliament. They're now taking on positions of increasing visibility, increasing uh, power. And I think those are are really important questions for us to think about uh, in the context of uh, the literature on civil war. In general, I think that on the regional level, and this is, I really appreciated the opportunity to write the POMIPS piece because I, I struggle with the, um, the multiple pressures placed on Syrian people in the context of the conflict. Right. I'm not quite sure how, how people can extract themselves from such a situation when there are uh, in, you know, humanitarian interventions occurring alongside military interventions, occurring alongside these uh, micro-political economies that are shaping uh, the day-to-day. -day. Um, and I think that in, in terms of the question of intervention, we've often posed it as, you know, you know, we should either kind of go in and destroy the place or, you know, destroy the regime, uh, and, or, you know, we, we sit on the sidelines. And I think actually what happened in Syria was, was something um, that we don't talk about enough, and that's that there was intervention. There was extensive Western intervention. The Americans have been, uh, have, <laughs> have bases all over Syria. They've been bombing the country since 2014. There were all these uh, regional states that were involved in uh, intervening in Syria. And those forms of military intervention did not produce regime change in the way that people wanted them to, but they were nevertheless consequential on the conflict. And I think that this, is, this produces this kind of the endurance of conflict uh, in a way that we, um, 
we, we need to conceptualize that a bit better, that, that uh, intervention, um, it, the forms of military intervention in Syria produced uh, the conditions for the endurance of conflict. Well, great, thanks. We've been speaking with Samar Aboud of uh, Villanova University. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, and I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome to the new books section of our show. We're joined today by Kelsey Norman of the University of Houston, author of the new book, Reluctant Reception, Refugees, Migration, and Governance in the Middle East and North Africa, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Kelsey, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this book. Uh, when you set out to write it, what were you trying to accomplish? And uh, what do you think the major contribution of the book is going to be? Sure. I see this book as part of a corrective that I think is occurring right now in terms of um, migration studies and political science more broadly. Uh, I look at three countries, Egypt, Morocco, and Turkey, uh, to understand how these countries receive and manage migrant and refugee populations. And I think too often countries of the global south, including these three countries, are thought of as just transit countries where, where people are passing through migrants and refugees en route to other countries in the global north. But the reality is that people are staying for long periods of time. So I'm looking at understanding how these countries that are effectively host countries are, are receiving people. How are they developing policies to manage migrants and refugees? Why might those policies change over time? And what are the implications of the different types of policies in place uh, for migrants and refugees themselves? And in order to do that, I propose this concept that I call strategic indifference, which I argue is a policy choice that states have, um, whereby they don't really directly interact with migrants and refugees, but basically they invite international actors and civil society organizations to step in and, and manage things on behalf of the state. And this provides these tangential benefits for the host state, things like um, economic benefits, um, diplomatic benefits, that mean the state doesn't really have to do much uh, on its own accord, but you know, it looks good internationally. And so they, they have these um, tangential benefits for host state nationals as well. That's really interesting. So tell us, why don't we start by what, what made you choose Morocco, Egypt, and Turkey? Why were those the best places to study this? Sure. Um, well, I was initially starting this project in Egypt. That's sort of where this, this theory and this, this research question developed. And then I was looking for interesting comparisons. So I knew based on previous work experience and um, based on when I was starting the, the project that Egypt hosted a large population of, of migrants and refugees that were staying there for long periods of time. So then I was thinking about what could be interesting comparisons and I came up with this idea of this transit turned host country um, and Morocco and Turkey in terms of within the Middle East North Africa region or the Mediterranean region are also we're also experiencing um, that phenomenon around the same time but there was there were these divergent outcomes that were beginning to appear. Um, so Egypt, or sorry, Morocco and Turkey were moving towards a more liberal policy and Egypt was moving towards a re more repressive policy. So there was this interesting um, divergence in terms of outcomes. And they all have these, these long-term populations or at least medium-term populations that are staying for periods of time. They have sort of pressure from European countries to prevent onward migration. Um, so there were some commonalities, and then also I talk about in the book, you know, there are some other exclusion, inclusion criteria for thinking about selecting those countries. 
And, and then the real world was, uh, I suppose, nice to you and offering a lot of things happening while you were in the middle of your research. <laughs> well, you know, in the book, I talk about how, so a lot of my research was always conducted between 2012 and 2015. I actually finished up my field work in Turkey. That was the last country I was, I was doing field work in, in the summer of 2015. So right around that time is when things started to really change in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Um, so I talk in the, in the last two chapters of the book about how these changes we've seen since 2015 um, impact the findings I have and how I think, you know, some of the, the trends that were already happening have really just been amplified since that time in terms of Europe preventing, wanting to prevent migration and the impact that has for countries like Egypt, Morocco and Turkey. Well, let's go back to this concept of, of strategic indifference. And let's walk through this a little bit in terms of what makes it different from the way other people have understood uh, the policies of countries like this. Sure. So this is something, um, you know, that developed somewhat organically during the process of fieldwork because I was coming into this project with sort of expectations derived from the existing literature, which predominantly focuses on the existing migration literature, which focuses on countries of the global north overwhelmingly. So I had understandings of what a policy, a migration or a refugee policy should look like based on that existing literature, and it just wasn't really capturing what I was seeing empirically mm -hmm. on the ground. So I started to think through, well, what if this response I'm seeing, which might not look like much of a response in comparison to what we usually see in countries of the global north, what if it is a response? How do we conceptualize that? And how can I, how can I think through it being a positive or affirmative response as opposed to just you know, neglect or the absence of a policy? And I think um, in the book, I, I detail how the, the fact that these policies changed over time does lend some credence to the original policy that states are responding with this idea of indifference actually being something that the state is, is doing as opposed to just not doing. And so what's the value of indifference then? So I think it, it allows us to understand states as, as actors that do have some capacity, even if it's not the same kind of capacity as, as countries of the global north. You know, they are, they are strategic. They are making choices about how to respond. Um, and they are liaising with these international organizations, these international actors and civil society actors uh, that are sort of carrying out engagement with migrants refugees on the state's behalf. And I think in terms of thinking about this as, as a positive response or an affirmative response, it allows us to actually see you know, what the state is doing, how it's maybe making calculations, and then what, what incentives are changing that are leading the state to make a, a different kind of policy um, later on or enact a different type of policy later on, whether it's more oppressive policy or more um, uh, liberal policy. So concretely, like take, uh, take, one or take some of the countries, uh, Egypt or Morocco or Turkey, and like what concretely do they get out of strategic, strategic indifference that, they, that makes this a rewarding policy for them for, for so many years? Sure. So, I mean, in terms of, in comparison, again, so, the, so if we're thinking about this sort of, these, these, this trilogy of responses that a state can have, a, a liberal policy or a repressive policy or an indifferent policy, indifference just costs less. It's, it's a less resource-intensive policy. So the state doesn't have to expend as many resources in order to implement it. Um, and what that means is that these international organizations and local actors are coming in, providing services. So let's say, for example, the UN wants to come in and do something for for refugees and asylum seekers living in some neighborhood in Cairo. In order to implement that policy, it then also has to, that policy has to benefit host state nationals, Egyptians living in that same neighborhood. So there's this, this you know, tangential benefit for the state because it, it looks good. It's doing things mm -hmm. uh, that otherwise the state, that these international organizations are doing things that the state would otherwise have to do. Um, and there's this knock-on effect 
of benefiting host state nationals. It also looks good diplomatically. So, and you know, as opposed to a repressive policy, which actually costs a lot for the state, they'd have to police and they'd have to round up people and detain them and even maybe deport them. Um, you know, it's not doing that. It's refraining from that kind of action because that looks good diplomatically, um, internationally. You place a lot of emphasis on the on the international side of things, the geopolitics and um, you know kind of the, the reputation management abroad. That ha and so, how, what brought you to that argument as opposed to kind of economics or um, state capacity or some of the other arguments that are out there? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm talking about all these different arguments in the book, so it's not to say that domestic politics or other things going on within the state don't matter. What I'm arguing is that there's this. Um, international component that really wasn't present, again, going back to the, the broader migration literature that looks mostly at global north states, the international component wasn't as prominent because states weren't necessarily thinking about, you know, how is this local uh, or this domestic policy going to benefit me internationally. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, some argument about, well, states are responding to international norms, etc. But I think with looking at countries of the global south, they're thinking about not just their own domestic politics, but also how it's how migration policies or asylum policies are going to benefit them or not uh, globally, whether it's in looking towards countries in the global north, powerful, you know, global north actors like the European Union or countries of the European Union, or whether it's sending states that are sending migrants or refugees towards them and and uh, the relationship with those sending states. So I think for countries of the global south, this is a really important component. Now, in all three of these countries, you see this big change in policy in 2013. So what happens in 2013? What makes this such, a, such an important year for changing these policies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't actually think it's the, the year per se. I think that there were a lot of factors um, domestically that are, are quite different for each state that, that happened to occur in 2013. So yeah, I, I do think it's more of a coincidence then. I mean, I think that there's some uh, external pressure from Europe that had been going on for a while. So I don't think it was particular to 2013, but I think in Morocco, it was a matter of there were these um, there was domestic local domestic pressure from civil society actors and from migrants and refugees themselves in confluence with um, some some events that happened with uh, in regards to this sort of international shaming tactics. So some local actors went to Geneva and tried to shame Morocco about its human rights practices in regards to migration, um, as well as pressure from the European Union. So it's, and, and also Morocco was more interested in its relationship with sending countries at the time. So this sort of confluence of events there. And then in Turkey, you know, the, the policy that I talk about hap happened to come to fruition in 2013, but the change has actually um, occurred earlier in, in 20, 2008. Um, so that was when Morocco decided it was going to reform its policy. And in Egypt, um, I'm sure as, as uh, many roasters will be familiar with, there was, you know, major changes to domestic politics at the time. So there was a military coup um, after which, uh, well, starting with sort of Syrian nationals that were in Egypt, um, the issue of migration became much more politicized and securitized. And that led to a more repressive policy in 2013, but also into 2014. And then in Turkey, you've got 2013 is also a big year. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, sorry. Then you've got this huge, this huge presence of Syrian refugees there. And it's a bit sure. later. This comes up later in your book in 2015. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. So in regards to yeah. Syrian refugees, there was, you know, people had been arriving before 2013 as well. Um, but it was, it wasn't really until I think 2014 and even more in 2015 when, when, right. Syrian, when the presence of Syrian refugees became so, so politicized and you start to see 
like opposition groups in Turkey becoming um, using the issue of Syrian refugees in order to try and gain votes and to try and you know to talk about potentially deporting people back to Syria. So I think that it wasn't so that wasn't so much in 2013 as much as 2014. Yeah, 2015. but that 2015 is interesting because since you place so much emphasis on the international side, that's mm -hmm. when Erdogan decides to start using it as blackmail and uh, getting yes. into this huge fight with the Europeans. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is, it had been an ongoing issue, uh, the issue of migration and, and asylum uh, had been on, an ongoing sort of um, football being kicked back and forth between, the, between Turkey and the European Union for, you know, a decade mm -hmm. at this point, since Turkey talked about joining the European Union. Um, but I think things really came to a head with the, the sort of large mass arrival of Sound seekers in Europe in 2015, and then in 2016, we see the EU-Turkey deal come to fruition. So yes, absolutely, the the leverage that Turkey had at that point really increased, um, and we see Turkey benefit in all sorts of ways from the EU-Turkey deal and continue to act in these um, sort of hardline negotiating with these mm -hmm. you know hardline negotiating tactics in order to gain what it can from its hosting of Syrians. One thing which was interesting that kind of ran through this is the um, the way that kind of regardless of what the policies were, they still the migrants still seem to play this like major role in the informal economy, almost almost um, independently of what the state policy actually is. That's true. So yeah, I mean, so another component of indifference that I talk about in the book is that you know part of what allows this this policy to work, this very hands off approach from the mm -hmm. state, is that migrants refugees are more or less permitted because the state is not interfering with them to participate in the informal economy. And so because we're talking about urban populations of migrants and refugees, which again is, is something that's been less looked at, I think, in the literature, um, people are able to sort of get by even though the state's not doing much to assist them. And sometimes there are international organizations, civil society actors that, that provide some assistance, but for the most part, people are kind of left to their own devices. But they're able to do that and they're able to somewhat manage because they're able to informally participate. And as you say, even though we see these changes towards a more liberal policy in Turkey and Morocco, people continue to primarily participate in the informal economy because the state hasn't really implemented the sort of measures that would be necessary to, to have a liberal policy really take shape on the ground for people right. to really go through like work training programs or finding, a for, finding formal employment, that kind of thing. Now, one thing which, is, which I found really interesting, um, especially in the Morocco and Egypt chapters, was the arguments that you made about the, the differential treatment of different, you know, basically migrants based on their country of origin and racial differences and the like. And that seems to intersect with, with, all, with this, this uh, idea of the international dimension in all kinds of interesting ways. But tell us a little bit about that, what you found in, in each of these two countries in terms of the importance of like African migration versus Syrian migration and different mm -hmm. nationalities and kind of how they differentially interact with uh, with these states. Sure, yeah, so in one of the chapters of the book, I look at, I focus in on Morocco and Egypt specifically and look at how, um, you know, drawing on this this idea that maybe there's these cultural foundations of the state that, that influence how a state responds to different groups of migrants and refugees. I try to take that argument and look at it um, with Egypt and Morocco in regards to more uh, African, uh, Sub-Saharan Africans coming to Morocco and Egypt versus those from other Arab countries. Yeah. Um, or those who would, you know, be, be more likely to get preferential treatment in the host state based on these cultural um, understanding or cultural ties. And what I find is that, you know, that actually doesn't play out when I look at sort of the aggregate, when I, when I look at all the, uh, the interviews from migrants and refugees that I was able to speak with, that actually things like, you know, how long someone spends in the host state 
can matter as much as where they're what, what nationality they have or where they're coming from, as well as whether or not they have legal status. But that said, I think that there. But then I, you know, I differentiate between de facto treatment, so how someone actually is treated, versus de jure policies that are in place. And those de jure policies are are often preferential towards certain nationalities, and those are more likely to depend on the diplomatic relations that um, a country might have with a sending country. So, you know, for example, in uh, in the case of Morocco. Uh, Senegalese migrants are going to have an easier time coming to Morocco and, and being able to find work because of agreements between um, Senegal and Morocco. Or in Egypt, um, Syrians were perceived as having sort of preferential treatment in the host state when they arrived in, uh, in between 2012 and 2013, when Mohammed, uh, former President Mohamed Morsi was in, in power, but that was predominantly due to Morsi wanting to express uh, support for Syrian opposition forces. There does seem to be a, a strong racial component to it. I saw that in, in a lot of your, um, your your interview responses, and it also resonates with what you know we know about these countries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and you see that you know I, I look both sort of in aggregate, but also at people's personal experiences. And certainly, people talked about um, times when you know throughout their experiences in these host states where they were racialized, and you know some some of the words in particular are, are really horrific that that people are called um, because of the color of their skin. But then that also that also kind of interacts with the role of like the NGOs and the IOs who um, you see kind of stepping in and filling that space between the state and the um, and the migrants. Um, and it's interesting, like uh, looking at, say, um, you know, the, the intense international focus on uh, the Syrian refugee crisis mm -hmm. versus perhaps different ways in which they respond to kind of ordinary migration from mm -hmm. Africa into mm -hmm. Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember just being really shocked personally by by uh, when I was doing fieldwork in Egypt, the fact that uh, so there'd always been this um, or for many years, I guess, really since the mid 2000s, there's been a UNHCR office for uh, for refugees out in 6th of October, which is quite, you know, on the outskirts of Cairo, it takes a long time to get there. It's quite a trek for people who are seeking asylum, having to go often, um, you know, make that journey from central Cairo. Uh, but then when Syrians started arriving, they opened up a secondary UNHCR office in Zematic, which is quite a nice neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. um, and much more central. So, you know, just that geographic location alone was kind of a, a clear indicator of the sort of preference um, that was that we were seeing internationally for, for Syrian refugees at the time. And then, of course, you know, and you talk about this in, in one of your final chapters, um, when you start seeing this major, uh, you know, the 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 migration crisis hitting Europe, this idea of them going from transit countries to host countries becomes quite mainstream. It becomes actual policy, European policy now. <laughs> Absolutely. So how does, how does that change the notion of indifference if it's now actually kind of being formalized? Mm -hmm. I think that um, Europe would prefer to see more liberal policies in these types of countries and less Are indifference sure? at play. <laughs> because that would mean that, you know, at least in theory, people would have less incentive to travel right. onward. But I think what becomes clear from, from the sort of analysis in this book is that, you know, money alone from Europe is not going to transform these countries into suddenly having these very liberal, very inclusive policies, right? Even in Turkey and Morocco, where you see a more de jure liberal policy on paper doesn't mean that that's, it's playing out that way for people on the ground and people are still wondering, migrants and refugees are still wondering whether they should really try and stay and make a life in Egypt or Morocco or Turkey um, or other countries when things don't seem like they'll be, like they don't seem like they'll be able to really make, you know, a full life for themselves. So people are sort of left in this limbo. And I think that when we see this continued externalization from Europe, 
you know, even recently, like this fall, with all European countries getting together and kind of agreeing that they're going to continue on this trajectory of these relationships with these other countries uh, to try and get people to more or less stay there and not come to Europe. Um, I think that we, we can't really expect people to necessarily want to stay when um, the policies in place are not supporting them, making livelihoods, sending their children to school, um, actually being able to build a life there. Now, one of the things which is interesting in your case selection is that all three of these countries do have relatively high state capacity. I mean, not, I mean, obviously there's issues um, in all three, but Turkey, Morocco, uh, Egypt, they're kind of on the upper side of that. Um, and in, in the end, in your last chapters, when you're looking at, at this, at the European migration crisis, uh, a, a country like Libya starts coming in and figuring prominently. Mm. Um, and so do you see differences in the way, uh, like the Europeans, for example, are able to deal with a, a Morocco or an Egypt as opposed to a Libya? Um, I mean, I don't know if it actually matters that much to the Europeans, I would say, <laughs> right, right. you know, I think, I think the, the bar has been, uh, the bar is so low now for the kind of country that, that the Europeans are consider are worried about working with that I don't know if it matters to them particularly what type of governance is, is in place or yeah, the relative state capacity, capacity of that government because you know even with Libya they're willing to fund those types of operations that maybe Libya the Libyan government or the, the, um, the whatever government they're working right. with of the competing ones uh, you know whatever they're able to do the Europeans will try and help supplement you know whether it's policing or uh, patrolling with boats or what have you or creating these detention centers. Um, so I think that Europe is pretty willing to work with, you know, quote unquote, bad actors, regardless of what the perceived state capacity or, um, or governance structure is in place. And actually a new project that I'm, I'm working on with co-author co um, looks at sort of the impact that some of this money might have, this European funding for migration management might have for governance itself. So kind of mm -hmm. thinking about that causality in reverse. No, it's, it's very interesting. I'm going to switch gears just for a minute um, about kind of the way you write the book itself. It's very interesting the way that you weave in um, kind of these, you know, some not super long, but but substantial, um, you know, kind of conversations with individual refugees and kind of giving uh, kind of a human face to, um, you know, kind of the, the, the broader political science type analysis. And I, I was just curious your thoughts on that in terms of as a way of doing and writing about this topic. Yeah, thanks for asking. I think that um, I have received mixed opinions about that, but I, I, I personally felt like I had these incredible narratives that people were willing to share with me and I wanted to illustrate, you know, just how impactful any of these decisions that a state might make are for uh, migrants and refugees and what it actually means to live in, in countries where maybe there isn't much of a policy in place or formal laws and how how that structures someone's ability to exist. And, you know, I think I talk like in the Morocco chapter opening up um, with this narrative of uh, someone who I'm, I'm giving the, the title Amadou, but his, his name is, his actual name is different. Uh, but he, you know, it has to learn sort of the informal rules of his state because that's so important for structuring what activities he can participate in. And these things aren't written out. You know, I mean, maybe things are written out in terms of what you can and cannot do, but what you actually can and cannot do might be quite different. And so there's this learning process and that's really intrinsic to the experience of, of living in a country that might have a more different policy in place. Then it's also, you see like a lot of, like the individual experiences can be quite different from what you might've expected. Yeah, and that was important for me to, to think about because that, I found that in conducting this research as well that, you know, a lot of times, and I write this in the final chapter, a lot of times sort of in, with the purpose of trying to 
illustrate that we really need to do more for migrants and refugees living in the global south because they're just wasting away and their lives are, you know, uh, you know, they're unable to realize anything and they're unable to participate in all these things. And while I think that, you know, they might not have the same opportunities as someone living in maybe a global north country, doesn't mean that people aren't doing things. They aren't, that they, they are participating economically, even if it's informally, they are creating social organizations, sometimes even political organizations, sending their kids to school, trying to just get by. Um, and so I think that those, those types of activity, activities are, are really worth understanding. Yeah, very much so. And then there's also like, I, I guess you, you would expect this, but it's also quite interesting to see coming out where you might see like an Ethiopian saying, God, it must be nice to be a Sudanese. And <laughs> yeah, that Sudanese exactly. saying, geez, they sure, they sure are nice to Syrians. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, there, there is somewhat of a hierarchy. It's or at least a perceived hierarchy, right? It doesn't always right. play out that way in practice. And I think I talk about, you know, for example, in Egypt, that there's Sudanese who might say, well, you know, Syrians are getting some such better treatment than me, but someone from Eritrea or Ethiopia is going to say, well, you know, Sudanese are so much more preferred here and Egypt has this long history, et cetera. So, you know, it depends on, on your sort of perception of that. There was, also, there was also a moment where you were talking about the access, the free access to hospitals in Egypt for, uh -huh. for Sudanese and Syrians. And then at one, I can't remember if it was a Syrian or Sudanese who said, God, you'd really have to die if you to go to a, to a hospital here. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, some, regardless, people don't necessarily want to go to public hospitals, even some Egyptians, of course, right? Um, yes, that's yeah. true. So then, like taking a step back, then um, so now, now that you, you you've written this and uh, you, you focused on these transit states and their ships and policy and the like, you know, I guess the kind of last question is like, where where do you see the field of migration studies from the, in the global south now going? Um, you know, where, what do you think like the big questions are now that you think people should be engaging with? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, it's changed so much since I started working on this project yeah, in really 2012. <laughs> So obviously now there's a lot more, uh, there's so many more studies on the Global South and there's really great uh, books and articles and everything coming out. And so this really is an, it's becoming an expansive field or has already transformed into an expansive field. So I'm just happy to be sort of um, able to contribute to that and to see so many interesting studies coming out from different geographies and different locations. Um, I think that people are, are I think now, you know, the, the premise that I try to address in this book is, is almost no longer a premise. So I think now, Hmm. There's going to be so many more studies in the global south that maybe we'll come to some kind of equilibrium or um, at least it's it's growing so much in that direction. But I think that there's still lots of unanswered questions about how, you know, how if we really take global south actors seriously, then how do they develop policies as, as I look at or how how are people managing to get by? How do they um, how do they do? Uh, how do they form political um, organizations or how do they pressure the state? And I think those things will also continue to change as, as Global South uh, migration is, is more accepted and more normalized. I think that like the transnational, the transnational advocacy you see between migrants refugees living in these countries and the way that they're able to participate, you know, whether it's at the UN or within their host countries, um, has also increased dramatically. So I think the, the situation itself is also shifting, but I think it's going to become ever more important as Global North actors continue to try to externalize people, you know, their, their borders and prevent people sort of at all costs from getting to countries of the Global North, whether it's in the European Union or here in the US or in Australia. And, you know, I write in the, the last chapter of the book that really this, this, um, this phenomenon that I'm talking about is, is probably applicable in other regions of the world. I think 
one country I'm interested in and, and possibly working with someone on a project on uh, is Mexico and the implications mm -hmm. that U.S. externalization has had for Mexico as a receiver of, of um, asylum seekers and migrants. Uh, it's really interesting. We've been speaking with Kelsey Norman of uh, the Baker Institute at Rice University about her new book, Reluctant Reception, Refugees, Migration, and Governance in the Middle East and North Africa, just published by Cambridge. Um, Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark.